there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he's your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. What Lewis does in that statement is draw out implications from what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. When he says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And that's true for every Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're trusting him, then Christ is in you. And the presence of Christ in you is your hope of eternal glory with him in heaven. Jesus lives in us, and he does so by the person of his Holy Spirit. When God saves someone from sin, when he convicts a person and brings that person to acknowledge that he or she has indeed violated God's commandments and deserves God's judgment, and then leads them to an awareness of their own inability and their own weakness, their incapacity to do anything about their spiritual condition, and changes their hearts, opens their eyes, unstops their ears so that they can hear the gospel, understand the gospel, see Christ, and trust Christ as they turn from sin, he takes up residence in that person. He comes to indwell people whom he saves. Every Christian then lives in the Holy Spirit. We live in the Spirit because the Spirit lives in us. And that's what C.S. Lewis meant. When you meet a Christian, you meet a person in whom God himself is dwelling. God is hiding, so to speak, inside that person. The Apostle Paul addresses what is involved in this life, life in the Spirit. Life where the Spirit indwells you. He does it in Romans chapter 8, which we have been looking at for the last several weeks. And today, as we continue our studies, we go back to Romans 8. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week to think again about what all is involved in a life that is led by the Spirit of God. A life lived in the Spirit. So we're returning to Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, though we'll focus on verses 14 through 17 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this passage on page 944. 944. And I'm going to encourage you to get a copy of this text in front of you, because we're just going to work our way through it. We're going to look at what the words are that have been inspired by the Spirit of God, so that we can understand them and plead with Him to help us apply them to our own lives. So I'm going to read... Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read all the way down through verse 17. So hear the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, last week when we began our study of this particular section, I pointed out that Paul here makes the point that life in the spirit is an obligation. It makes you a debtor. So if you're a Christian, you are a debtor according to this particular text. Now, he explains our indebtedness negatively and then positively. And so in verse 12, he says, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. So we're no longer under the obligation that we once lived to commit sin, to go forward in sin, to live without thoughts of God or seeking to honor God in how we live. But positively, he goes on and he says, we are debtors to the Spirit. Now, we looked at verse 12 last week and began to uh, look at verse 13 as well. And today we're going to take up with verse 14 through 17. But in verses 12 and 13, what we learned was that as we're not debtors to the flesh, we are debtors to the spirit. And the first way that that indebtedness to the spirit or living in the spirit manifests itself is by a life that pursues holiness, pursues holiness. And so we have that incredible statement in verse 13 that we must by the spirit put to death the deeds of the body. So if by the spirit, Christian, You sign no peace treaty with your sin, and you continue to declare war on your sin. Paul says, well, that's the way of life. That's the kind of life that results in eternal life. Not because you do this, you earn eternal life, but because you have indeed been indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit within you empowers you by His strength to put to death the deeds of the body. But today we want to pick up on Paul's train of thought to recognize what it means to live a life indebted to the Spirit or in dependence upon the Spirit. It involves not only pursuing holiness seriously, we looked at last week, but we're going to see today. It also involves enjoying deep personal relationship with God in Christ. Deep personal relationship with God in Christ. We see this in verses 14 through 17. And there are four specific realities or blessings, we might call them, that attend the life of the person who is indwelt by God's spirit. So if you're going to live a spirit led life, according to scripture, these four realities will be in your life and they're available to you. They need to be uh, cultivated more and more, but they are provided for you because of Jesus Christ. You'll see them as we work through these verses, but let me just list them for you here first. There's adoption. There's intimacy with God. There's assurance of your salvation with God. And then there is the inheritance that we have from God. So let's work our way through these one by one. In verse 14, Paul says, For we, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of of God. Adoption. We've been adopted by God. Now, I need to say first off what this in good Pauline fashion doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean. Paul is not talking here about the universal fatherhood of God. He's not suggesting what some people today think is just an axiom, something that is obviously true, that we're all just children of God. And even some who name the name of Christ have taken that idea, and they go to Acts chapter 17, verse 29, in order to claim biblical support for it. In Acts 17, we have a record of Paul 
preaching to the Athenian philosophers. And when he says what he does in that passage, that we are all God's offspring, he's actually quoting one of their own poets. And he's not making a case for the universal fatherhood of God. He is arguing that we all belong to God by creation, that we have all come from God. We all are obligated to God. The idea of universal fatherhood of God was soundly refuted by our Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 8. There we have a record of some of his Jewish opponents coming to challenge him. And when he begins to press them, this is what they say. We have one father, even God. But then in verse 42, Jesus disputes this claim. They were proud of the fact that they were Abraham's children. Therefore, they were the children of God. But listen to what Jesus says to them. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here and I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then in John 8, 48, he makes this astounding statement. You are of your father, the devil. They thought they were children of God. Jesus sets the record straight in a very offensive way. Oh, no. No, you have a father. But he's the devil. He goes on, your will is to do your father's desires. To live according to what the devil wants. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. And he does not stand in the truth. There's a contrast. You can tell who your father is. Are you standing in, following after, living according to the truth as it's revealed in Scripture? Or are you living in ways contrary to the truth? There's no truth in him, Jesus said. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So what's the point? Not everybody has God as their father. You don't know God as your father simply because you live. Because you're a human being. Jesus says some people have the devil as their father. Now, that's a serious and sober thought. And if you believe that, well, then what Paul says about the possession, the privilege, the blessing that exists for those who live according to the Spirit, that we're adopted by God, that becomes just mind-boggling. It's an incredible statement. Adoption is to be welcomed into God's family. To be adopted by God means that you are given the privileges the blessings as well as the responsibilities that children possess in a family. I love the way that our church's confession of faith addresses this. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession puts it like this. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. So there it is in summary statement. We, having been adopted by God through Christ, enjoy freedom, enjoy privileges that come from being indeed children of God. Included in the privileges of being his children of this, we're given access to his throne of grace, and we can come to that throne boldly. We don't have to hesitate. We don't have to be fearful. 
Why? Because he is our father. We're his children. We are given God's compassion, his protection, his provision, and yes, his discipline. Why? Because we are his children whom the Lord loves. He disciplines in order to make us more and more like Jesus. As his children, we also have responsibilities to represent our Father in his world. So we now live in the Spirit with obligations about how we talk, how we think, how we relate to people, how we work, how we play. Every aspect of our lives we do now as children who've been adopted by God. You know, when my kids were little, I I tried to explain this aspect to them by comparing how they could relate to me as their father versus how the kids in the neighborhood could relate to me. I loved the kids in the neighborhood, but they weren't my kids. And my kids had special privileges. My kids could come and talk to me anytime. My kids could sleep in my house. My kids could eat my food. Uh, My kids belonged to my family. And that's what Paul is saying is true of those who are in Christ, those who live in the Spirit, those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. We are indeed the children of God. So as we pursue a life of holiness and engage in the spiritual work of putting sin that remains in our lives to death, we are being led by the Spirit. And as such, we can be sure that we are sons of God. The Apostle John never got over this amazing reality. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he writes this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. <laughs> Consider how the Father loves us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. Brothers and sisters, stop and think regularly about what it means to not simply in name, not simply in pretense, but in reality to be a child of God. You're in His family. He welcomes you to His table. To be led by the spirits to enjoy the privilege of being adopted into God's family. Only those who are led by the Spirit are His sons. The next blessing that we see in this passage is one that builds upon this idea of being adopted by God. It involves being able to relate to God with deep intimacy. Look at verse 15. Paul says, elaborating this idea of receiving adoption, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Paul makes this point the same way that he makes so many points in his letters. He gives us the negative, then he gives us the positive. What's not true, what is true. So what's not true? Well, negatively, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, again, good Pauline fashion, let me clarify what he doesn't mean here. He's not saying there's no sense in which Christians are slaves, because we are. We're slaves of Christ. I mean, that's Paul's favorite designation for himself. He calls himself the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting Christ, brothers and sisters, you are also a slave of Christ. A joyful slave. A willing slave. One that has given up his rights in order to know Christ. 
But what Paul is saying here is that Christians do not have the spirit of slavery. This mentality that we so often rightly associate with slavery. You don't have to live the way the Israelites did when they were under Egyptian bondage and slaves. When their taskmasters took perverse delight in making their lives worse. He is reminding us that we once were slaves of sin. We once were ruled by the devil, by this world system, by our own sinful natures, and we couldn't extract ourselves from that. And it was a horrible, deadly way to live. But Paul says, you did not receive that kind of spirit when you were converted. Rather, you received the spirit of adoption. This one that brings us into intimate relationship with God. In our unbelief, all of us were slaves to sin. In our unbelief, all of us had the legitimate right to think about God in eternity with kind of a slavish fear. Because separated from God, the destiny that awaited us was eternal damnation. But Paul here is saying, now then that you've been born again, now that you have been brought to repentance by the Spirit, brought to trust Jesus Christ, you have not received that kind of Spirit again. In Christ, we are free. As he says at the beginning of this chapter, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no need to fear the power of sin. No need to fear death. But then, positively what he says, you haven't received that kind of spirit, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And here he's referring to the Holy Spirit once again. The spirit whom every Christian receives at the point of coming to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us into God's family by adoption. He is the one who makes us as sons. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses that language of sons. He's not being chauvinistic. He's not excluding women at all. That's not the point here. He uses it interchangeably with children in the verses following. So if you look at verse 16 and 17, which we'll do in a moment, you'll see he speaks of children. He does the same thing in 21. It's interchangeable. But sons, especially firstborn sons, were in the place of greatest privilege in Jewish families. And Paul is highlighting the incredible privilege that belongs to every child of God to be regarded as a son of God. Israel is called God's son throughout the Old Testament. And of course, God's only begotten Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, Christians are adopted into God's family. In Him, we become regarded as sons. The Holy Spirit is the one who works all this in us. He is the one who enables us to cry, as Paul puts it, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment used by children for their father. It's an Aramaic term. It was used almost exclusively in inner circles of families. Jesus used it in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was facing his impending execution on a cross, enduring 
God's wrath against sin because he took the place of sinners. Mark's record of that has these words voiced by Jesus. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Some have suggested that a modern parallel for this Aramaic idea of Abba is our English word daddy. And some would even advocate praying to God, calling him daddy. I don't think that's a wise thing to do because I don't think that quite gets at what is being taught to us here about the relationship that we have with God. God is transcendent. He's almighty. He's sovereign. And when you become a Christian, he doesn't stop being any of those things. What changes is the relationship that we have to him. Because of Jesus, our faith in Jesus unites us to God. And with that union, we enter into a level of intimacy that was previously unthinkable. By the Spirit's ministry, we're able to come to God. We're able to call upon God. We're able to know that He loves us, that He cares for us, that He is attentive to us. We don't have to come with any fear. We don't have to come with any hesitation. There's no need for any shame when we gather in His presence. In fact, Hebrews 4.16 says that because of Christ, we can come to our Father with confidence. We can come with boldness. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. Before we had grandkids, Don and I decided that we should probably choose our own grandparent names. You know, if you leave it to the kids, you just never know what's going to come out and what you might be called for the rest of your life. So we chose Nani for her, Paps for me. And one of the greatest joys of my life in this era, late stage of my life, is to have a, a grandchild climb up, climb up on my lap and just kind of snuggle in and settle in. And I play a little game with them very often. I'll say, what makes you think you can just crawl up on my lap anytime you want to? And the ones that have played the game a lot of times will say, because you're my paps and I'm your grandchild. And it's true. The relationship is what makes that intimacy available. And brothers and sisters, in a far more profound way, we have the almighty sovereign of the universe as Abba, Father. We, we can go to him. We can know that he loves us. He doesn't stop being anything that he's always been. But because of his son, he, he welcomes us into his very presence. It's an incredible privilege, an amazing blessing. And it belongs to everyone who is trusting Jesus, everyone who is being led by the Spirit of God. If you don't know such intimacy with God and you're trusting Christ, then I just want to plead with you today to take time, take time today and get alone and pray and ask the Lord to help you understand what's being communicated in this passage that you can open up your life and be known by God because He loves you. He welcomes you. Indeed, He calls you to enjoy this intimate access. 
And I know there's some of you here and you can't even begin to fathom that possibility. If you think of God at all, he scares you. Or you try to remake him in your thinking so you can laugh at him or laugh about him. Well, if you believe what's true about God, to be scared of him, that's a right response. That's good. Because he is a frightening being. Scripture says he's a consuming fire. And if you're not reconciled to him, then being afraid of him, that's legitimate. That's right. But do you know that this God who is fearful is the one who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to reconcile people like you and me to him so that we can come to know him as our father. This is why Jesus, when he came into the world, obeyed God's commandments perfectly so that he might earn righteousness for unrighteous people. That's why having obeyed God's commandments perfectly, Jesus stepped into the place of sinners, taking our sin upon himself and endured God's wrath against sinners, though he had no sin of his own to pay for. But that's why he shed his blood on the cross is to reconcile sinners like you and me to God. That's why he was raised from the dead on the third day to demonstrate his power, his sovereignty over sin and death and hell so that there's nothing that can keep him from accomplishing his mission. That's why he was ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now, interceding for his people. That's why he's going to return one day to bring to a conclusion this saving work that God has been doing throughout history. He did it. So people like you can turn from your sin and trust yourself to him as Lord and be reconciled to your God and be welcomed into the very family of God. God is yours as your father. If you will have him. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Believe what God says about why he did what he did in sending his son into the world. Acknowledge your helplessness. Acknowledge your need. And you will be received by God. When the Spirit of God takes the word and convicts of sin, when he convicts you of your separation from God, it is not to condemn you. It is to humble you. It is to make you ready, willing, and able to turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this by opening your eyes, changing your heart, giving you new life. And when that new life comes in power, you will trust the Lord Jesus. Well, this is what it means to be led by the Spirit. It involves being adopted into God's family. Secondly, it involves being given Intimate relationship with God through Christ. Thirdly, a blessing that Paul spells out in verse 16 is that assurance is provided to those who are led by the Spirit. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, how does the Spirit of God bear witness with our spirit? Is this a direct and immediate bearing of witness in some inexplicable way? 
in the best sense of the word, in a mystical way that we can't fully comprehend, but we do experience, bringing about an inward conviction that we're adopted by God? Or is this witness of the Spirit indirect and mediated through Scripture? So that when you read the promises of God's Word, you're convicted by the Spirit that these promises are for you. Well, the best of Protestant Reformed theologians throughout history have disagreed on that question. And you can find good people who thought seriously about this, who have different perspectives on it in those two ways of thinking about it. The main point what Paul is making here, however, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings Christians to know that they are indeed God's children. The Spirit does it. And there are many ways of the Spirit with us that are beyond our ability to fully explain. And the Spirit undoubtedly uses the Word of God to convince us of its truthfulness and its applicability to us. It is only through the presence of the Spirit of God in you, only through His ministry, that you are able to call God Abba, Father. This is underscored in what Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, which Jared read earlier from Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He says there, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, there's a slight difference in what he says to the Galatians and what he says to the Romans. Did you hear it? In Romans, here in our text, verse 15, it is we who cry to the Spirit, or cry to the Father, Abba, by the Spirit. But in Galatians 4, it is the Spirit himself who cries out. And when you bring those two truths together, you get this very point that it is by the Spirit that we're able to call upon God as Father in an intimate relationship. You know, when we talk about assurance and try to sort out how to come to confidence that a person is right with God, if you're doing this for yourself or you're trying to help another person to become assured of his standing with God, there's two errors that need to be avoided. And they exist on opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one side, you have presumption. And on the other side, you have unbelief. Presumption says, oh, I know I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer when I was eight, or I joined a church, or I was baptized, or I did this, or I did that, or I just feel like God loves me and is for me. And you can be completely convinced, even when you are satisfied, to go on living in sin. When there's no conviction about going against what God says is right and good and not believing what God says is true. There's a billion people like that in the world. Oh, I know. I know I'm a Christian. You don't keep God's commandments though, do you? Well, no, of course not. But I know, I know I'm a Christian. So you don't mind going on living in disobedience to God's commandments? No. Well, that doesn't, that's not what the Bible calls Christianity. That's what we would rightly call presumption. Because the one who says he knows the Lord and does not do what he commands, John says, is a liar. The truth is not in him. When a person who has fallen into presumption claims that he is right with God, he might have great confidence in that claim. When in reality, he may well be 
lost and on the road to hell. And what he needs is not to be given reassurance that he's right with God. What he needs is by God's Spirit to be brought to genuine repentance and faith. That's presumption. It's a dangerous error. But on the other side, there's unbelief, which is also a dangerous error. Unbelief says, I cannot let myself believe that I am a Christian because sin is mixed with everything that I do. My sin is ever before me. I know I don't love Jesus as I ought to love him. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I hate to do, I find myself doing them. And I'm not satisfied with that. This person might have little hope that he's saved. When in reality, he could well be forgiven by God, but not yet having come to full assurance of faith. The awareness that God has received him. Again, our church's confession of faith is so, so helpful on this point. And I'm tempted to read all of chapter 18 to you. There's four paragraphs in that chapter, but I commend it to you. It's on the assurance of faith, and you would be helped by reading it. Let me just summarize what our confession sets out there as it teaches us the biblical ways of thinking about assurance. Assurance is a fact, it is a right, and it is a duty. A fact, a right, a duty. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. God promises that to be the case, and God does not lie. So, whoever believes in Jesus Christ is saved. That is an objective fact for all who are trusting in Christ for salvation. It's certain. God declares it to be so. It's factual. It's objectively true. But secondly... The subjective assurance of that fact is every believer's right. If you're trusting Christ, if you say Jesus Christ is Lord, then you have the right to declare that you know God has saved you. Being assured that you're in a right relationship with God is not reserved for a certain category of Christian, a super Christian, the real spiritual Christians. To all who trust in Jesus, God gives his promises that he will be their God and they will be his people. So to trust in Jesus is to have the God-given right to know that he loves you and has adopted you into his family. But thirdly, assurance is not only a fact, it's not only a right for Christians, but it is a duty. It's a responsibility, which if you're trusting Jesus, you bear. If you live in doubt and fear of your standing before God and you're, you're tormented by that, then recognize that God calls you to make your calling and election sure. He puts responsibility on you. You are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to the way that Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He writes, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
said, I just, I want to be sure. I just can't let myself really believe that I'm saved. Could it be that you're in the precise category that Peter describes here? That you are blind, nearsighted, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins? Peter concludes this with an exhortation. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with assurance, brother, sister, accept the responsibility from God as outlined in 2 Peter chapter 1 to begin to pursue, to cultivate those virtues in your life. Those seven things that Peter says you ought to pursue. List them out, write them on a piece of paper. Pray that God will help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in such a way that you will begin to see by the ministry of the word and spirit these virtues blossoming in your life. As you trust Jesus Christ as Lord, Accept your status before him as his child. Accept it as a fact because God doesn't lie. Don't settle to go on living with a lack of assurance. Recognize that because you trust Christ, it is your birthright by the work of the Spirit of God in you as a follower of Christ to come to a settled assurance that you belong to him. And give yourself diligently to grow in his grace so that you can fulfill your responsibility to make your calling and election sure. So to be led by the Spirit is to be adopted by God. It is to have intimacy with God. It is to be given assurance of salvation. And finally, to be led by the Spirit means that you have an inheritance from God. You are, as Paul puts it in verse 17, an heir of God. He writes, and if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul keeps building this argument to reassure us of our status before God, to encourage us to live in the spirit, to be led by the spirit, showing us the blessings that go with such a life. Our adoption by God includes inheritance from God. And that's simply the way that families work. It's the way God designed it. Children inherit from their parents. We inherit all the blessings that go with having God as our father. Because we are in Christ, the only begotten son of God, Christ is a fellow heir with us. He's our elder brother. Because of our union with him, we can expect all that God has promised to him to be given to us as well. What does this mean exactly? It means more than we can comprehend. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 and 29, Paul says that believers inherit the promise that God gave to Abraham. We're now, in Christ, the true children of Abraham. You remember in Romans 4.13, we looked at that many, many months ago, Abraham was not simply promised a strip of land in the Middle East, but he was promised the whole world. Look at that verse again. Paul writes that the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. 
That's mind-boggling. But it's precisely what Paul had in mind when he writes to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, exhorting them, rebuking them for their childishness and the way that they were acting. He says in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 3, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. He's telling Christians that the world is ours. Or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You're an heir of God, brother, sister. Which means that God has the whole world in store for you. I appreciate what Leon Morris says about this idea of being an heir of God. He writes, Paul uses the term heir to denote full possession of all that sonship means in the new age. But it's not so much ownership as relationship that he has in mind. So the greatest part of being an heir of God is not that we get the world. I mean, that's incredible. But we get God. We belong to God. God welcomes us. We're his children. We get seated at his table. He pledges himself that he will be our God. And we shall be his people forever. Now Paul goes on at the end of verse 17. And he adds something that's vitally important. Our inheritance with Christ eternally will be received as we suffer with Christ now. Provided, he says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Paul here is not so much laying down a condition which must be met as he is making a statement of fact that must be acknowledged. The inheritance that we will share with Christ in the future comes as we walk the path of suffering with him now. Brothers and sisters, I, I wish there was some way I could communicate this more clearly than I can. But one of the most significant things that we ought regularly to bring back to our minds in this day and age is that our Lord and Savior, our Master, suffered. He was slaughtered on a cross. To follow Christ is to follow Him in the pathway of suffering. The cost of discipleship is to take up our own cross. And to continue to follow the Lord Jesus regardless of cost or consequence. If we fail to remember that and to keep that ever present in our thinking, in our fellowship, in our associations with one another, then we are being set up to be eaten alive by this world. Our master suffered. And so we should not think it strange when some fiery trial comes upon us. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. When we remain true to Jesus, we can be sure that those who opposed him will oppose us. Paul goes on to say, however, in verse 18, that we'll look at our next time, God willing, 
that when you compare the sufferings of this present life to that which awaits us, it, it doesn't even merit conversation. <laughs> it can't compare to what God has in store for us in Christ when He returns. So we are to live as children of God. Set your mind on what it means to be an heir of God, a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Think about what awaits you in the coming age when Jesus makes all things new. All things belong to you because you belong to Him. As Christians, we are obligated to be led by the Spirit. That is, we're obligated to be living a life that is controlled by and directed by the Spirit of God as He indwells us. We are obligated to live for His honor and His glory because He has saved us. To be led by the Spirit is to be adopted by God. It is to be given access into intimacy with God. It is to be given assurance that we belong to God. And it is to be given an inheritance with Jesus Christ forever. So in Christ we are blessed people. In Christ, we must live in dependence upon His Spirit. May God help us to do so, so that we might go on enjoying more and more all of these blessings that belong to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the incredible truths that You give to us here, the blessings that are promised to us here. Help us to believe what you say and to order our lives accordingly. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.